If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly programme about news in the worlds of business, finance and economics. I'm Edward McBride, the finance editor. On today's show, I'll be talking to Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, about an article of his called What's Wrong with Finance, which recently won him the Chartered Financial Analyst Society's Journalist of the Year Award. We'll also be talking about the plummeting oil price and why it may not be such good news for the world economy. With me to talk about that is Henry Tricks, our Energy and Commodities Editor, and John O'Sullivan, our Economics Editor. So, uh, Henry, the oil price has fallen below uh, $30 a barrel. It was just a short time ago, it was $130 a barrel. How much further can it go? Well, when it started to fall, the main, the main reason why it started to fall um, over a year ago was because Saudi Arabia and the other OPEC countries had decided basically to open the taps and let oil flow and drive the expensive oil out of the market. Unfortunately, everything that they thought would, would happen hasn't really happened, which explains why the price has fallen below $30 now and could possibly continue to fall. The main reason is basically because production has maintained above the levels that people would expect at very low prices. So it would have been expected, for example, and the Saudis, I think, certainly hoped that um, when oil prices started to fall, some of the new production, like the shale oil production in the US, would, um, would basically be too expensive to be maintained. So that would shut off wells in the US and would basically lower the amount of oil sloshing around in, in the markets. But um, the U.S. producers have been incredibly resilient. And now uh, this week we've uh, had um, what has been something of a surprise, which is Iran coming back to the market much quicker than expected because of the lifting of sanctions. And this brings possibly another half a million barrels of oil onto the market. So... At this point, it's quite hard to see when uh, people actually start uh, shutting in production, stopping production, because they've been able to uh, sustain it even uh, you know, at prices between 40 and $30. But the oil companies have sustained it at, at some cost to their balance sheets, their debt loads and so on. What sort of shape are they in and, and how long can they carry on? They've certainly been hit very hard by it. Um, profits have been affected badly and, and companies are laying off workers and cutting their investments extremely severely. We've lost something like 400 billion of of new potential investments over the last few years. You have to remember that once the wells are drilled, the costs have been sunk uh, and companies will do whatever they can to keep producing as long as their operating costs are above the oil price. And the operating costs on some of these rigs remain fairly fairly low, so companies will keep producing while they can. And John, normally we think of a low oil price as very good news for everyone but oil producers, a sort of stimulus, a bit like a tax cut. That's the, the, the normal way of describing it. Is that what's happening this time around? Is, is, is this a boost to the world economy? I still think it, it is a boost. And if you look at big areas of the world economy last year that saw sort of mild upside surprises to their growth, so particularly Europe, but also India, Pakistan. India and Pakistan, you're talking about one and a half billion people right there. It's very difficult to rationalise how well those economies are doing relative to expectations without factoring in that they're big oil importers. So I think there has been a clear 
sort of net benefit, certainly on the consumption side, from, from low oil prices. The but is this, which is that traditionally we think of, as you say, an oil price fall as a tax cut for consumers and essentially the end of a windfall for producers. And we think of the producers and the consumers of having different propensities to, to spend money out of extra, an extra dollar of income. I think the gap between those two has narrowed. If you think of large parts of the world, many oil producers, uh, when oil revenues go down, spending is cut and the economy sinks. Nigeria is a particular example of that. Angola, Venezuela, um, even Saudi Arabia, the lowest cost oil producer, has had to cut its budget in response to the lower oil prices, which it itself, as Henry just pointed out, has instigated. So I think that it's an increasingly thin idea that producers don't spend and consumers do. I think the gap between the two is narrowing. It's still probably a net benefit, but it's not as large as it used to be. And there are two other considerations to to add on top of that. The first is that, as Henry was just saying, there's been a lot of investment in out-of-the-way oil wells, which um, require a lot of expensive investment. And with the oil price coming down from uh, over $100 to less than 30 a lot of that investment has just simply dried up. And that has had an impact on global aggregate demand. And you see it in places like Brazil and even in America, where there's been a big drop in oil-related investment that may have actually at least mostly, if not entirely, offset the benefit to consumers of lower oil prices. And the, the other factor, the sort of depressing factor, is just the sort of financial uh, implications of all of this. Think of the places that are being hit hard by lower oil prices. I mean, the countries. So, again, Nigeria, Brazil to some degree, Angola, Venezuela. These are places that are not particularly stable. And there's a concern that there's a sort of emerging market crisis brewing. And it may be triggered by by low oil prices. And you never know quite how to calculate the net impact of this. But it's certainly a residual worry that's been eating away at uh, investors' nerves in the past couple of weeks. So it sounds like what I'd been thinking of as a silver lining for the world economy may actually be something more like another cloud. Anyway, thank you very much, Henry. Thank you, John. Uh, Speaking of clouds, what is wrong with finance? That's the title of the article that won our Buttonwood columnist, Philip Coggan, a journalist of the year award from the Chartered Financial Analyst Society. I'm going to quote a line from the article. Economists fail to understand the importance of finance and financiers put too much faith in the models produced by economists. That, that's the basic thesis of two underlying uh, problems in the world of finance. Uh, can you explain them to us a little bit, Philip? Start, start with the first one. What, what was it that economists didn't understand about finance? I think the key thing they didn't understand was the importance of the financial sector within their economic models. Basically, they regarded it as something of a, uh, a wash, that debt was owed by borrowers and owed to creditors to the extent that borrowers lost, creditors gained and vice versa. But as it turned out, it's much more important than that. And we saw that in 2008. And we've seen it since in the failure of the economy to respond as quickly as people hoped to the stimulus that has been pumped into it by the central banks and others. The problems really are twofold. The first is that while it's true that debt is net, there are occasions when both the creditors and the debtors can lose. That is particularly the case if debt is secured against assets and, of course, property. The collapse in asset prices when there's a lot of secured debt can hit the economy. The second big problem is that um, when debt is very high relative to GDP, 
the amount of debt that has to be refinanced in any given year is significant. So let's say, as happened in many countries, the total debt to GDP ratio was 400%. And the average maturity of debt is around five years. So 80% of GDP has to be financed every year. And at that moment, the creditors have to be confident to roll over their loans. And what we saw in 2008, and we've seen since, is that creditors aren't always confident about their ability. We saw it with uh, homeowners in 2007, 2008. We then saw it with European governments in 2010, 2011. And we may be starting to see it in emerging markets now. There's, there's the financiers who put too much faith in economic models. To tell us about that. Yes, the two things are related in that economists tended to view not only the finance model as something apart from the general workings of the economy, but also that the finance model was efficient, that prices were set uh, with regard to all the available information uh, and that there was sort of no money to be made for no free lunches, no dollar notes sitting on the pavement to be picked up. And as a consequence of that, financiers tended to assume uh, that the markets would always work well. And they also tended to assume, and experience bore them out, that central banks would bail out the markets when they wobbled. That happened in 1987, it happened in the early 90s, it happened in 1998, it happened after the dot-com crash and so on. So they built up debt-to-GDP ratios and they also devoted more of their energies to speculation assuming that the economists knew what was going on and that central banks would always ride to the rescue. And what they missed, really, was a sort of minor branch of economics that has become more important as time has gone on, the idea of behavioural economics. So the sort of classic example of the rational man, homo economicus, who assesses all the future happenings, discounts all the cash flows back to current level, um, looks at a tax cut and says, well, that's bound to lead some tax rise in the future and therefore I don't spend it all. And all these kind of things uh, bears very little relationship to what people actually do in their lives. Um, people are prone to fads. They are uh, influenced by their neighbours, they herd, and that can drive asset prices above or sometimes below um, their fair value. And both finances and economists really have failed to develop that insight into a proper model uh, of what's going on. Okay, so you've you've outlined these two big areas where uh, the thinking has been a little bit misguided in terms of finance. Is there any hope of, of fixing them? What what would be the way to get people to, to approach things a little bit uh, more sensibly? I think you have to worry about two things. The first is the build-up of debt. So there has been a move towards this idea of prudential regulation, looking at things like loan-to-value uh, ratios on properties. So not just using interest rates as a tool um, to control uh, the economy, but using other measures because an interest rate rise clobbers the whole economy when actually what you might be worried about is simply the property markets. That's one thing. The second is that uh, central banks need to take account of all indicators of the financial markets rather than focus on uh, one or two. So to be uh, looking at shadow banking as well as the mainstream banks. But I think there's another insight that we need to stress, which is that the role of the finance sector has been inflated relative to its economic worth. Finance is about organising payments. It's about conducting market transactions. 
but its take of the economy has become much greater in recent years. And there is evidence that the finance sector has been about rent-seeking, about exploiting the information it has relative to clients, and it's earned too much money. It's going to take a long time, really, to shift that perception, but it needs to be done. Philip Coggan, thank you very much. That's all for this week. You can find Philip's article, What's Wrong with Finance, at economist.com. And don't forget, if you want to be part of the conversation, you can tweet us at econbizfin or at econeconomics. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.